0: Hi, it's Mind Rolling. Raghu Marcus here with David Silver. New Year's Eve. Eve. 2014. 15, 14. How does it work, Dave?
1: Well, I made the mistake last night, a major mistake. I was going to a Broadway play, and I was on the subway, and it was so crowded, I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't. So I I got off the subway 42nd Street, Times Square and tried to walk to 52nd Street and could not do it because on the eve of the eve, there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lunatics staring in the opposite direction at what was not yet happening. In other words, the ball dropping, the Ryan Seacrest and and Anderson, none of them were there. They were all, you know, in their villas. But there were these millions of people there. I couldn't... What were was, they doing? It was most awful thing. This was the eve of, of New Year's Eve, and it set me to thinking that we are truly living in a completely insane culture. Nothing new there, but I had it happening to me. Hmm. People pressing against me. When I tried to walk north,
0: people stopping me. Ah! ah! <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like... A story from the end of the world. It had that feel. Yeah. Um, hey, I wanted to mention something, because usually, well, let's just say, at the start of our shows, we have been, you know, asking for support and going through these song and dances around Amazon and... Getting that link from MindPod Network up on bookmarked up on your bookmark bar so that whenever you buy anything from Amazon, we get a little piece, and that goes a long way to supporting what this whole MindPod Network is doing and including us mind rollers. Well, we've, we did, and, and we got some mail about it. <coughs> well, one piece of mail about this. But it, it set us off. We want to know. We want to know because it, it, we were apparently the last episode we did. We were we were really pitching for a while. It was a bit of crazy. Eddie went too long, maybe. So we want to know. On the other hand, it is the end of the year, and we're looking at what we are trying to accomplish going into next year. And we can't do it without you all. That is the the bare truth. So we'd like to not to go on about. Uh, getting you to... Although the the little recommendations for Amazon are sweet, aren't they, Dave? I mean, really. They are, but um, the the gentleman who wrote to us who started off
1: the, the comment by saying, you guys spent about a fifth of the podcast promoting consumerism. Of dozens of podcasts I, list to, I listened to, I think only Duncan Trussell, in talking about bidets, can spend more time promoting Amazon B days Duncan is promoting B days Well according un- to uh, Joda Gordon he is and we got this letter which is kind of angry with us I think because he, he you know we, the show was about abundance and about the commodification of of everything and and he felt that we were talking about it but you know and being critical and stuff but we were also doing it I don't think and he's he got was. a point but yeah, you no, know, how, wasn't, how he... are we going to survive Joda could you send us a, like a large check and then well. we won't do this anymore.
0: All right. Well, but on the other hand, <laughs> we are talking about uh, commercialized stuff in that podcast, and you know, and here we are. And I, the I, last podcast, I recommended two, not one, but two different audio systems to go along, so you can hear music and film on your little iPod and iPhone. So, uh, yeah, we're we're there. Unfortunately, we have to be there because we can't do this without. Uh, counting on consumerism that we all take part in day-to-day. Day. It's just a fact of life. It's so- Yeah, we're
1: not gentlemen farmers. It's not like we can get the cows out and plant the seeds and then go back to the manor house and get the peasantry to do it. We are paying for this. So, you know, we're not moaning or anything. But, by the way, Joda, um, maybe a, a woman's name or a man's name. I'm sorry, Joda, we, we don't know what gender you are. But um, if you are a woman, I apologize for only using the word he. Um... And, and, you know, you do make some good points. I, you, were, you were a trifle condescending to us because you said, you know, that we were the kind of people who want to love everybody and but hate the right wing and had no sympathy for the right wing. Well, that's our and, whole
0: thing. We're trying to deal with that, right?
1: Yeah, well, he's got a good point. He, she has got a good point uh, that, you know, we don't want the us and them thing happening. We don't want to be screaming at people for having different views. However... Um, you know, many people who are uh, spiritually, or, or you know, organized, and know about the us and them problem, uh, still find it rather difficult to sympathize with people who are not humanitarians. And uh, this week we saw that one, of the, the the majority whip in the house, who's uh, called something like Scalise, um, has been found out to have given a talk to. The, not the neo-Nazis and, and white supremacists some
0: years ago. He has the right Lu- name, though, doesn't he, Dave? Hmm? I think he has the right name for his particular... Yes, he does. Uh, ...Scalese.
1: Uh, he's denying it, you know, and saying that, you know, um, he didn't know... That they were that, even though they were David Duke's organization. And it sounds like complete and total hogwash to me. And he sounds like a right wing lunatic. So when we're against right wingers, it's not against so much um, concepts, political concepts. It's just the kind of people who seem to gravitate towards it, seem to have no sympathy whatsoever for those less fortunate than them. I mean, you know, I can't handle that. I can say that because I'm a, a, a student of Ramdas, I can say that I will not hate them. But I will not stop saying they have lousy incarnations to be so cold-hearted about people who, for very little fault of their own, are having a hard time feeding their families.
0: Well, I hope we're not sounding defensive here uh, about this male. We (laughs) are. Because, yeah, we have a hard time uh, talking about how it is you all can help support what we're doing. And going out and actually doing it, and, and those of you that are doing it, and there's quite a few of you that have started doing it, supporting especially the whole network, mindpodnetwork.com. It's, uh, it's really a, a fabulous uh, feedback for us. And, but we do need to do it. We do need to ask for donations. Buy a t-shirt, uh, a mind-rolling t-shirt. We've got some new ones, Dave. I'm I'm dying to see them. Yes, and uh, not new. We're going to make a new logo coming out for next year. I'm just I just thought of that, Dave. I think Joda, in, in in the criticism
1: he made of our, you know, pitching was more about Amazon and and that he probably has some real doubts about, uh, you know, the overall um, goodness of something like Amazon, and you know, I agree. It's it's a little scary uh you know yep. so, soon they will be actually running the government i mean and they've got drones it is scary but
0: but it is a, a scary it's all scary the whole point is how do we <laughs> absolutely try our best and do some practice so we can get present around these issues really yeah. and that's really what i would say to joba yeah. we are really we are really dealing with our own attachments related to consumerism we are dealing with our polarizations that go on regarding people who have different viewpoints you know we're that's what we want to get at with this whole mind-rolling business so actually in the end Pointing this stuff out is absolutely useful, and we'll limit the amount of time. We won't... See, Duncan is our guru as far as podcasts go, and he's telling us, get in there right away. If you want to get support right away, get right in there, and you talk about what you need for people to do regarding Amazon and whoever else you have as an affiliate or a sponsor. I want to move on. And I want to tell everybody that David did a heroic thing this last, I believe it's only a week ago. Heroic in that he's been, his uh, his partner goes to work every day, so he's alone in his place working alone pretty much day day to day basis. The thought of compromising with another being, living being, uh, I thought he would never be able to do that because it's a compromise when you have, even a goldfish would be a major compromise. Yeah. David got the cutest little kitty and he's completely, wildly in love. And that's all he talks about now. We can't get an, ed, you know, word in edgewise, about anything no, else.
1: It's all I'm interested in is her antics. And, you know, my partner is, you know, the head of the Humane Society in New York. So she, uh, you know, made it easier for me. But I'm alone with, with my little Padma, Padma is a, a Sanskrit word actually, I sha, meaning lotus flower. Hmm. And, and that gives an impression of how beautiful she is. But I, I'm likely to turn to one of those people
0: on Facebook that you just scroll past because it's all about their cat. Well, listen to this. Here's somebody who's been a clinical psychologist for over 30 years. Chained, he was trained in the psychoanalytic method, and he spent most of his career in an office seated behind clients who lay on a couch, right? Remember, have you ever done that, by the way? No. I've done it. I couldn't believe it. The guy said, you want to lie on the couch? I go, really? That's like on TV. I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) And I did for a while. Um, So what he did, he started practicing face-to-face video psychotherapy. This is something I think you and I can consider maybe getting involved with, with clients from all over the world. So he meets them. And often, he meets their pets as well. This is mind-blowing. Consider Cheyenne, a ginger cat, who often jumps onto the desk where my client has placed her laptop. If her owner does not respond to this demand for attention, Cheyenne will walk directly in front of the laptop's camera and has even gone so far as to show me her backside. Then (laughs) there's Rufus, a mid-sized dog of uncertain parent parentage who erupts in outraged barking nearly every time I talk with his owner. (laughs) Rufus (laughs) understands that his job is to scare off the UPS man whose daily deliveries coincide with our session time. Or Lola, a rescue dog who last week carried her food bowl clutched between her jaws into her new owner's office. I could see Lola's face full of longing, desperate to be fed a puppy a puppyhood of pain and neglect written on her features. Or perhaps I'm projecting. So he found out that by interacting with his patients and their animals on Skype, he got this completely uh, additional insight into his clients. And to... uh, For instance... He, so he says, I'm sorry, he says, I practice from a home office, and sometimes my dog, Alice, takes part in sessions. A well-mannered ma- white lab, when she finds herself alone, she will bark softly outside my office door. The first few times that happened, I tried to ignore her barks. One day, a mildly exasperated client said, why don't you just let her in? And so I did. Now, when there is barking outside the door, a client's face will light up and he'll ask, do I hear Alice? When I let (laughs) Alice in, she settles quietly at my feet. Good girl, I'll say. And so he says, I've come to understand, this is the beauty of this thing. I've come to understand that the greatest influence on the healing process in psychotherapy, at least the way I practice it, is the love I feel for my clients and the love they come to feel for me. As a professional, I'm uneasy speaking this truth aloud, and my clients often don't feel entirely comfortable with it either. The love we feel for our pets helps ease the way. I witness the affection they feel for their pets. They see mine for Alice, my dog, and it brings us closer. Have you ever heard of anything like this?
1: No, actually, but I think there's a lot to it because, I mean, you've got four amazing dogs, and uh, I grew used to them, and they're very easy to deal with. I mean, they're incredibly sweet and intelligent. But they do have minds of their own, and you sort of have to discipline your own life and work around them and understand their needs are total. I mean, it's not like you can go, okay, I really don't feel like getting out of bed and feeding you. It just doesn't work like that. And I'm just beginning to find this out with my new pet. I found out, I realized that I run around a lot in
0: my apartment, that I, I go from the bedroom to this to that. Oh yeah, no, well, it's this is going to improve your health, absolutely. They know. say she a pet, out. a pet keeps people way more active, absolutely. Definitely,
1: I mean, I'm I'm slowed down now. I'm almost like a normal human being, and it, it's almost. But you know, she did this for me because if I run from one thing to the other, picking up a document or a book or a something, she freaks out.
0: Well, oh, uh, I want to you tell you. I want to tell you not to interrupt. I want to tell you though. Um, if you need help, if she starts to really freak out too much and you need some help, you would write to Joseph Burgo, B-U-R-G-O, and he's the author of the forthcoming book, The Narcissist You Know, Defending Yourself ex- Against Extreme Narcissists in an All-About-Me World. I want to read that book, okay? <laughs> That's really right in there. I'm not so sure I Joseph, uh, you know. yeah, hopefully. It might sound like a biography
1: to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> To, to you, to absolutely everyone. <laughs> yeah. um, and by the way, this is an excerpt from Couch, which is interesting, Dave. A series about psychotherapy at NewYorkTimes.com slash Opinionator. Mm. So uh, this, uh, uh, anyhow, I love this little article, and it it's just points to, I mean, of course, the way that people are with their animals where they drop so many defenses and how we we become much more simply who we are it this would make the most sense to me i mean yes i
1: mean raga i found myself at seven o'clock this morning supine on the floor rubbing noses with my little kitten and and saying i love you so much i love you i love you now i just then at that moment thought about what if Someone visited my apartment, like our friend Shiva or something, and I said to him, "I want to lie down and rub noses with you and tell you how much I <laughs> love you." I think he would all right Well, then stupid. you'd
0: be—you'd probably have to talk to someone even more heavy than our friend here, this therapist. You'd probably have to—you'd be taken to a, an asylum, is what you would well, be doing. You know, so don't go too far into this. Yeah. Um, all right. T- talk to me about you. Have something that talk about this time.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it, it, I mean, it's from you, but, you know, you didn't have time to really get into it, but you sent me an article from Tricycle, which is a great magazine, and I do recommend anyone who's interested in, in really very diverse explications of Buddhist law and teachings, lore and teachings, and so on, uh, to get Tricycle. I've loved it for years, um, and you can get it at Amazon, I say quickly, um, but this article is by a man called David Patt. And it's called, Who's Zooming Who? The Commodification of Buddhism in the American Marketplace. Is consumerism the new American religion? Is the market itself determining not only the students, but the teachers of Buddhism? Now, Rago and I talk about this a lot. But I found this article extremely wise. uh, Because he, uh, David, Pat, um, first of all, talks about, you know, the Four Noble Truths and all the things that cross different forms of Buddhism, vajrayana and Tibetan and Tantric and so forth, which is the elimination of desire, hatred, and ignorance. Uh, the three root kleshas or obscuring emotions. And goes into some detail about that, about the cessation of desire, uh, quotes the Buddha, leading to peace. And then he says, consumerism is the exact opposite idea exact opposite idea. It is based on the notion that material well-being is the highest goal or the only goal worth aspiring to. Happiness comes from having. Value resides in the stuff you possess. This path to happiness requires an endless indulgence of desire. Now, there's nothing new about that, but then he goes on to describing something called the commodification of consciousness, uh, dealing with something that Karl Marx said, actually, and then gets into his real point, which is, the Buddhism and other, uh, you know, disciplines have to engage in the mass media and in various forms of promotion in order to get you know, people to come to their uh, to their classes or to read their books or whatever. And there's a definite paradox, a conundrum, a contradiction even in that. And he mentions uh, a, a catalog called Mystic Trader, where you can get a three hundred and twenty-five dollar gold leaf Buddha statue. And the, and the ad says, if you ever desire to invest in a Buddha, here is a great opportunity. <laughs> and, and, and then he goes further, uh, and we can. I'd like to get your comments, but um, he's basically saying that the market, which is enveloping the world, uh, created originally by the Industrial Revolution and in Britain, and then much bigger by the United States, is all over the world and is maybe the only religion that most Westerners actually truly believe in, which is, you know, getting a better job, getting a promotion, getting better houses, cats, dogs, a better breed, whatever. You know, that's something we all know about. But what he's saying is that it's creeping into the promotion of Buddhism, which uh, decries that desire system as being wholly distracting from where we might want to go, which is into a much more natural mind, which is better for the planet, for ourselves, for our families, for our friends, even for our enemies. So he's got a good point, and there's more to say here, but, uh, Raga, what do you think? I mean, do you think that that is really an issue? No.
0: Um, Why not? Okay. Well, tell me what you mean. Well, simply what, what what Buddhism related to uh
1: well he's saying that it's become such a a a fairly popular thing in the west that there's a lot of competition and that you know in order to actually get your class or to get people to know you uh, he says it's become true that the most famous teachers are the ones that get the most students and sell the most books and fame seems to be uh, needed even for those who don't desire it in order to, you know, to get the, you know, to get the hits out there. And that it's completely against uh, the quiet stillness of Buddhist practice and the witness that one must uh, invite during meditation and other times to, you know, to stop you from just thinking the external world is where it's at and, Let's just get as much stuff as possible. Well, um, if, you know, yeah, so he, sees, he sees a real contradiction in the fact that Buddhist teachers and other, you know, have to, you know, do this gig of, of saying, you know, come to my retreat because it's,
0: it's fantastic. In uh, some other way, in ancient times, teachers <laughs> were going around and people were gathering around them and word of mouth spread about particular teachers, events that might have happened around them, or whatever. We are in a completely other world here with the speed at which that kind of thing happens. But I think it just boils down to the same thing for, for that teacher now or that teacher then. And that is, if that teacher is attached to any of the material associations, uh, fame, uh, possessions, ease of life, acolytes, if any teacher is attached to any of of what comes with being well-known, as he's putting it, then that's just, unfortunately, uh, they're going to have to deal with that karma. They're going to have to transform it at some point, and maybe they're being given it now so that they have that opportunity. Well, everyone has that opportunity to transform that, unless you are the Dalai Lama. Uh, Karmapa, you know, very very few beings like this don't have that attachment. So, uh, so I think that that uh, and as far as the people who who follow, uh, certain people that maybe have that attachment and uh, and there is an awareness there. You know, every get, everybody's getting what they need in this whole thing, mm-hmm. and and I think the ones that um, are not. Attached in the way that they're blind, they have no awareness about where the stuckness is, just that level. So, not a you know, not we're not talking about a realized being, talking about an evolved teacher that is just has enough awareness that they're not getting caught in any of this stuff, although they can see the tentacles that reach out from unfinished places. So, there's quite a few of beings like that, and we know. Quite a few of them ourselves. I mean, one good example in this is not in Buddhism, but is uh, I would use Krishnadas, uh, our friend, uh, who uh, certainly is, you know, leads a large, merry band of people into chant into kirtan around the world. I mean, beloved, and the the reason, as far as and I, we've known each other a long time. We had Triloka Records together and all that. So. The reason is simply that he really is doing this as a practice and whoever wants to come along with him, fine. Obviously, wherever he's still stuck and where there's tentacles going out, he's fortunately been given enough awareness or he has uh, the karma of having enough awareness to deal with the transformation of, of all of the stuff that we all deal with. So I think that's really more to the point that, that uh, these, te- you know, he's talking about Buddhism because there certainly Buddhism is is has taken such a strong hold in the West. Uh, an amazing and so many amazing teachers, and they're just you know, This is the assumption that these. He's saying it's it's. Uh, is he saying Dave that it, it's a terrible thing that we're in this culture. And these people, these teachers have to deal with getting famous through social media and through all of the you know, books and this, that, and the other is is a bad thing. I, well,
1: you know. he's he's such a good writer that um, and we recommend his article in, in, in Who's Zooming Who in Tricycle, that he, he, he displays in the article all the sides of it, you know. Uh, for instance, he says, um, you know, yes— uh, the Bodhisattva concept is that you know you're not a realized Buddha until everyone is, and that you're you know you use your awareness and knowledge and communication skills to bring as many people to that awareness as possible, and you can't really say you are uh, realized until you've done that. That's the third stage of of the first one is you know being aware of the here and now uh, and and the last stage is uh, and, and being present. the last stage is is definitely. Not being satisfied until you brought this message to everyone, like His Holiness. But he says, because of that, you know, uh modern people have to communicate without a nuclear family setup, without community setups that are just there in the village. You know, you can't do it that way. If you're if you've got a, a, a you know a class in Los Angeles, Chicago, London, Amsterdam, Moscow, whatever, you must communicate via the mass media or no one will come. And then he says, that's a compromise. Do the compromises themselves, the quest for airtime, for column inches, for book contracts, for a bigger media footprint, a grander name, more students, more centers, more more better bigness, subtly subvert the true message of the Buddha? And I think that you answered this yourself by saying that, well, no matter what, um, it's a question of, att- of non-attachment. And that, you know, mm-hmm. but then he says... We're kidding ourselves in a way because we're we're kind of doing a very American thing, pardon the expression, and making it very easy. You know, a hot tub at Eslin. He says you never see an ad that says at this Zen session you will be yelled at if you move at this vipassana course you will experience severe pain, mm-hmm. or at this tantric retreat you will know what the, you will know you will not know what the heck you're doing. It's not false advertising to point to the higher goal rather than the obstacles on the path. But doesn't one cross the line into hype and pandering when only the positive is emphasized? In other words, it's gonna be groovy, you're gonna come out of it totally liberated, you will be just a happy camper. Oh, uh, listen,
0: listen, Dave, I gotta tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because talk about uh the hot tub at Esalen, that image. Okay, so picture this. We're at the retreat in December. We've talked about it and when we came back with Ram Dass and Krishnas and Jack Cornfield and Trudy Grudman and Mirabai Bush, just a host of fantastic people. I shouldn't leave out my beauty of a wife, Saraswati Marcus. And it's right on, a, you, Dave knows it well, it's right on a cove and with a lovely white sand beach. And looking out over the calm waters, the whales are jumping, yeah. the dolphins are jumping. You take these lovely walks through the volcanic uh, rocks that line the shore, and and uh, and we are meditating and listening to dharma talks, and we're doing yoga, and we're chanting and hanging out in a restaurant. Some people are having, you know, martinis. God knows, I don't know. And it's just this opulent, upscale, incredible scene. And I'm walking, <laughs> walking with Duncan Trussell, who you all know, or at least anybody out there who doesn't know Duncan Trussell, I want you to write to me, and uh, <laughs> I'll give you his phone number. <laughs> and we're walking, and he's uh, he says, "You know, I think he was um, he was quoting something he had read." About how a psychological thing actually he did in this podcast, which we haven't released yet, that I did with him uh, at the retreat. And it was about people diluting you know, you just trade your ego in, you know, you start doing spiritual work and you trade your ego in for another ego, which is now I'm a spiritual person and here I am popping down the beach, it's all one, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) He said, I feel so guilty being here I can't tell you <laughs> I said you know what <laughs> I used to I used to that has run through I used to think like that as well but I tell you I don't know what it is about our guru Nimkaroli Baba Maharaji but even when we were in India he had us in these beautiful houses for India being fed Tremendous amounts of the most delicious food and sweets you ever had in your life, okay? And pile... I mean, we would be there for hours eating. They wouldn't stop. And then hanging out with him, just like love, and nothing, no teachings, no meditating, no nothing. We were just hanging out. I mean, it was so... uh, Of course, watching our minds completely freak out wasn't so much fun, but that was a side part of it. (laughs) Uh, But it was... There is no way that anyone can say about any particular moment that you happen to be in that unless you are flaying yourself uh, with those whips uh, on the back or walking on nails, whatever the hell you've thought about or we have thought about what spiritual life is supposed to be and that— listen we did end up at times you know uh, just in racked pain uh, f- uh, doing vipassana courses or whatever of course all of that happens but I, it has so little do with little to do with the outward trappings of where you are if you happen to be and the biggest thing here is yes people do get caught by especially in this in this day and age with the power of this of media digital media and social media and instantaneous uh reactivity to stuff it is very easy to get caught and you are using that and spiritual people we're doing it ramdas.org i mean you know we're we're doing it with well mindpod network uh we're we're essentially doing that as well we're getting it out in social media. We're, you know, enlarging the audience. We want to make the offering. We want to share it with more people, and at the same time, you know, we're trying to support what we're doing in life. So, I, none of that is bad. It's just if you get caught, and it's what you said before. It's about attachment. It's nothing more or less than that. Um, and he talks about turning the energy of the desire-driven market back on itself, transmitting a message that ultimately will cut desire. It. To me, I think he's saying that's. This is. Look at this as an opportunity. The ease at which you can develop all of this consumerism and large audiences and fame and everything's being thrown at you like wildly. Look at it as an opportunity to transform. Now, many people get lost, and we all get lost a little bit, except His Holiness doesn't get lost. And that's because— I mean, yeah. But it's it's because he's firmly entrenched in real bodhisattva vow of love and wanting to help. Right. Every individual, while he's here on the planet, so
1: well, isn't, it, isn't it a question of balance, wrong? I mean, the Buddha's students got very angry with him when he, you know, when he he said this this ascetic, no eating anything but you know berries, if that, in the forest. And when he left the forest and went back to eating, some of his students were kind of pissed off at him and said, "What are you doing? You're denying what we're doing here, which is to be uh, only focused on the natural mind and so on." And he said, no, it was, there was nothing, you know, we've all seen those skeletal uh, sculptures and paintings and so on of the Buddha, when he looks like a skeleton, his ribs are, and and people sometimes will stop right there and go, okay, I'm not going to eat anymore, I'm not going to do this, whatever. But the truth of the matter is the Buddha came from, you know, enormous opulence and power and fame, went to the forest went to that kind of extremism and then came out of it the other end and said, no, this is not the answer. The answer is to be in the world, to see how it goes, to see how it runs. And I want, to go, I want to move with that. And, you know, that sort of answers the question in a way. Because, you know, and again, even that's subtle, because some people really do want to, you know, not flail their backs like the extremists, but, you know, to, to stop at a certain point and say, no more stuff. No more stuff. I think most of us, by the time we get to a certain age, are kind of like that. Uh, You know, I mean, I no longer want to buy certain things that I I really did 20 years ago, you know, buy a Hugo Boss suit, uh, which could feed a family for a month or longer. It never crosses my mind anymore because I think there is a maturation. I'm not being self-righteous, but, you know, as you get older, you realize, well, you know, soon this body that I'm so happy with uh, Will be just you know a rotting corpse, and at that point, uh, if you don't pay attention and say, "Well, you know, I think I better start moving into other areas apart from acquisition," the problem is that you know Western, Western, and you know not just Western global consumerism is very powerful in a way, and and brainwashes people into believing. And Ram Dass talks about this all the time, in believing in their roles. And therefore, if you're a teacher, please get tenure. And when you've got tenure, become the head of the department. If you're working in Sixth Avenue as a salesperson, let me become the head of, of men's sales. All of that. Further and further and more. Annie Lamott talks about this all the time, too, which is that drive to be better. You know, that Amer- the American dream is not really the Buddhist dream. It's not. It's, it's not. It's something else. And I don't think it was the dream of Thomas Jefferson, actually. I really don't. I, I think that, you know, the Industrial Revolution changed everything, and America was just better at it than any other country. And, uh, you know, here we are with um, every imaginable luxury available to us if we want to move mm-hmm. in that direction. And, and then, you know, suddenly you're Donald Trump, and instead of being Donald Trump at 41, you're Donald Trump at 81. And what do you do with it? Where's it going to go? See, that again, that's rationalized because people say, well, I'll give it to my children. I'm doing this all for my children. Yeah. Uh,
0: Why are you doing it for your children? Why do you teach them how to meditate? Hey, there's something else in this article I just noticed while you were. Yeah, yeah. uh, I'm just rambling here a little. No, it's okay. Uh, It talks about uh, the great Indian pundit, Atisha, who arrived in Tibet in 1042. His task was to reestablish the ethical basis of Buddhist practice after a century of darkness and de- degeneration, so he composed the lamp for the path to enlightenment that's something Dave I want to yeah. get that let's I'm going to get that uh, and I'm going to share it with you I think that's something because what he did he condensed uh, the t- basic teachings of Indian Buddhism okay so this is into Uh, A Practical Guide to Practice, and he described three levels of motivation for pursuing a spiritual path. Uh, And that is so much about, uh, obviously, what we would need to do to really pursue that is to invite some of our uh, Buddhist friends, Tibetan Buddhist friends, to help us make uh, uh, simplification, simplification is not the right word, but... Uh, give us a ground of understanding that connects with who we are in this culture, and yeah. we do have people who can do that so uh, let's let's uh let 's make a note lamp for the so everybody out there go on and get the lamp for the path to enlightenment and we'll we should have you know we should do... we should have an online thing. whoever wants to have a discussion kind of course with us. We're going to go through, and we'll we'll have people come on. And we can all kind of do a study course together. What about that? Very That's good idea. idea. Like that idea? I really do. Note that.
1: Incidentally, yep. just on what you were just saying, in the same article, uh, it's called the Lam Rim tradition. Uh, Teacher's original yep. teaching. Mm-hmm. And he says, in the Lamrim tradition, based on the teachings of you, it is said that the unexamined life of mindless sensory indulgence is no more meaningful than the life of an animal. Yeah. Yeah. As my old landlord at Black's Gaslight Village in Iowa City used to say, my philosophy is the same as a dog's. If you can't eat it or fuck it, piss on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I like this article so oh, much. Oh, that's
0: great. I, I must say that
1: Tricycle <laughs> just keeps on coming. It, 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 it's a very satisfying magazine because we, we see these, these great, great articles that are very cleverly written, carefully written, which is so respectful to the reader, you know, that we're talking about it and, and we could talk about it for a lot longer. But, um, you know, how are we doing on time here, by the way?
0: Time. Yeah. No problem. Keep going. Okay. Well, I you mean, can go on about this. I mean, we don't have on. on we can do whatever we want. That's the beauty I mean, of podcast. He,
1: just to go into a slightly different thing, he says something that you and I have talked about many times. He says, "What about the marketing of meditation techniques to relax and improve productivity of corporate workers?" Yeah. The Bodhisattva has compassion for all beings. But did the Buddha teach meditation so that the designers of cruise missiles, the dealers of genetically modified corn, or the marketers of Pokemon could relax and feel good about themselves? Does a meditation club at the Pentagon represent the pacification of the military-industrial complex or the concentration of the warrior mind? Mm. Um, It's a good question because, um, you know, Mirabai Bush, our friend, dear friend and great teacher, and wise woman, say the least, uh, has done some teachings with uh, military. But her teaching is very subtle because she's done teachings that suggest that if you are in the military, think before you do anything. Spend that moment before you do anything that you're going to maybe regret, which is just maybe kick down a door in Kabul, uh, you know, or in Mosul, and go in there and there's people in there and just maybe kill one of them, instead of which she says there must be a moment that you stop and maybe save a life. That you're a military man, and and if you do involve yourself in some kind of mindful, te- mindfulness techniques, uh, you will not just act impulsively. And that uh, therefore you could say that the military needs this just as much. They exist. The military exists. They're there, and they're not going away in the near future. They're just not. Whether you like, we or most of us are pa- pa- some form of pacifists. Not that. Mm-hmm. not that knocked out by you know m16s and cruise missiles and drones but they exist and what mirabai has been doing is helping um young uh men in the service men and women in the service to be more mindful of the humanity of the people that are in front of them that can't be bad
0: mm. here's the just uh, i think one last thing for this article uh yeah. you're right it has a lot of rich stuff in it But this in particular, the values of renunciation, altruistic concern for the welfare of others, and realization of interdependence are by their very nature a revolutionary threat to consumer capitalism. The market responds by co-opting and commodifying the social structures that express these values. Waking up to this tension leads us to questions that the monotheistic religions have been struggling with for centuries, but which most modern Buddhists have avoided, is modern capitalism with its retinue of social injustice, militarism, and environmental destruction, ultimately incompatible with the Buddhist way of being in the world. And if it is, what is a good Buddhist to do about it? And uh, so... I think he answers, and and to me this is, uh, I don't, it's not a direct answer, but it really uh, speaks to what he's talking about. While the great explosion of desirous energy in this century is considered to be a serious obstacle to most spiritual paths, it is actually helpful for the practice of Tantra. This is a quote from Introduction to Tantra, a book Uh, where desire is the fuel propelling us to our highest destination. And that, isn't that it, Dave? That's it. It's about taking all of this stuff and transforming it. That's basically what, uh, in a very simplistic manner, what Tantra is. Of course, everybody here thinks Tantra. In the West, we all think Tantra is, uh, you know, the eight zillion different sexual... uh, positions and so on and so forth, Uh, but this the true transformation that can take place so that the issues that uh, are brought up by uh, the reality of what has been created by this capitalist consumerist culture and what we are dealing with, that's probably one of the big reasons that the universe... I mean, on one hand, it's horrific what's gone on in Tibet over the, since 1950, in the 50s, and what the, the Chinese have done. On the other hand, it has released this incredible science, I would call it, into the West to confront dead on with this uh, the, the, the very stuff that's made us who we are today. And, uh, and who, of course, the East is turning to at this point. So I, I think it's a perfect storm in a good way mm. uh, that uh, if we could only but see the opportunity that, that we have, and that's not always easy to see when there's tremendous suffering as a result of some of the things that we're talking about, from um, the one percenters to the environment uh, so, social inequity, uh, all of it, uh, it it can get to the point where it is not so easy to have that awareness, and to be able to uh, really move to transform. That's why, bottom line is, we got to you got to have some kind of practice that allows you to connect with a place in you that can truly witness and have that awareness. So. Um, it's really a great, great article. Uh, it is. I'm, I'm glad I found it, and I'm glad you read it. I love it, good guy. I love this article. I,
1: I just thought that it it made it clear that, that this is a subtle game.
0: Can I read a poem? Please do. I've yeah. never read a poem on the show. No, this is new. And it's a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. I'm not, somebody went to you. A friend of mine went to use my computer and said, "I got to look something up." And I said, "Go ahead." I came back to it, and uh, this page was opened up, and I thought, well, I'll read it. It's a poem. is called Kindness. Okay. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. How about that?
1: That's amazing. I mean, you know, after that, words seem a little superfluous. Yeah.
0: I mean, I I don't know who this person is, and... um, yeah, it's just fantastic. We, we we spend this whole show talking about this particular Buddhist article and consumerism and the and Buddhism in the West and and the takeover through media and social media and how you have to become famous for anybody to hear you and so on. And then this little poem is out there on my desktop, Googled up by somebody a friend of mine, I had no idea about it, and it's just there. Mm. Mm. Pretty amazing, no? Well, the word kindness
1: seems to be uh, the common denominator for all kinds of teachings now, you know, that certainly Sharon and and Pema and children and all of these amazing teachers, and certainly His Holiness, say if you can't get anything else, if you can't, you know, deduce anything else from what we're saying, we never are not saying be kind. Uh, and 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 you know that famous old quote, which I've done before on the podcast, which is um, from a, the Greek times: um, "Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle." Yeah. And. That inspired me when I read it first, because we don't think that much of the time, and particularly people we don't instantaneously love, you know, uh, the people who irritate us, the people who are our ogres. And I'd read somewhere once that the ogre that makes you most crazy may be your best teacher, just like that uh, body lying at the side of the road, which we avert our, our attention from normal and human reaction. but. Buddhism is such an advanced, evolved thing. It's amazing to me <laughs> that from 2,500 years, this incredible science of awareness and kindness, compassion and and more uh, precluded, you know, I don't know, everything that we take for granted now. Before all that, before industry, before agriculture, before all that, th- th- there were these people who Came up with this stuff and wrote it down. The sutras are there. I mean, even the gospels weren't written by Jesus, but it seems that this one person, the Buddha, put it all down. I don't know. I've never actually
0: known what form of media was it leaves? Was it parchment? What was it? No, no, it's oral. And then they, yeah, and then they use whatever, who wrote all that stuff down later, 100 years later, whatever yeah it was all oral and then it was laid down. And then, in the case of the Tibetans, with Padma of course, he uh, he purposefully hid all of these teachings, the termas and and they were discovered over centuries by different prescient Lamas. So, Do you think he hid
1: them because he thought they would just be abused by most people who would if, if it were just like on you know CNN uh, instead of hidden? would it do any good? And, and obviously Papa Baba, who's one of the two or three most, you know, beloved people in Buddhism, um, felt that way, that they've got to be I Nah,
0: I, I mean, who would know anything? I mean, we just flapped our tongues for an hour. We and, did. And God knows, you know, we don't know a darn thing. We're just trying to work it out like everybody else. And, uh, you yeah, know, we're a little older, so we've had some experiences. But uh, basically, uh, everything that was supposed to happen in each moment was absolutely divinely intelligized. How about that? that? Well, <laughs> you like that? The divine intelligence, whatever you want to call that thing, there uh, makes it just perfect for whatever needs to be revealed to you as an in- us as individuals, or to a larger circle of people. So. How now, look at his holiness going around and teaching in front of multitudes, these uh, sometimes very esoteric te- uh, teachings that, of course, we have, you you go to one of his uh, public things where he's teaching very, very deep stuff. You'll see people sleeping left and right, nodding off, and then, you know, and he even addresses it, I know it's difficult, it was difficult for me back then, but you got, you know, you got to really work at it. Um, So I, I just uh, think that we are really, uh, my favorite thing, Dave, is to just come down, you know, again, we go through all of this stuff is to, to, that's why I like this poem is to come down to something Direct and simple. Uh, and that's why his holiness is so great. It's, mm-hmm. He can say one word, you go for that darshan, he says one word about kindness, uh, where he, he speaks to everyone's hearts in a moment. And that's really what, what it's all about. Uh, and I think, in, in terms of, we have to practice. And uh, if part of our practice uh, for, for Buddhists in particular, studying these texts and that text that I met, we mentioned earlier uh, I, th- I think these are good things for us to spend our time doing rather than buying stuff or you know becoming attached to uh, phenomena now on the other hand we still need you to go to Amazon uh, go to mindpodnetwork.com <laughs> and go to get that Amazon link because we absolutely Need that support, so I had to get that in. I'm sorry. No, no.
1: We—it's a fact. It's a fact. It may—you know—if we were landed gentry, you know—if—if—if if, if you were, uh, you know, Richard Branson, and I was, you know, Warren Buffett, we wouldn't be asking for this. Thank stuff. you.
0: I'd rather be Richard. <laughs> you be Warren. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah we ain't that so uh, but forget that stuff because we promised we wouldn't go there, but as you can see that it's on our mind uh, mindpodnetwork.com mindrollingpodcast.com uh, you can go to either one. just go to mindpodnetwork.com we are right there. you see our yeah you'll see us right away. and uh, from deep down inside us, on behalf of David and I, we want to wish you a great 2015. You probably are going to hear this a week after New Year's, is it? No, no, it's going to happen. What's today, Dave? Wednesday? Today
1: is New Year's Eve. Yeah. December it's the last
0: day of... Why don't 14. we get this out tomorrow? And and it's a big, happy New Year, yeah, if we can get our friends to work on this. Yeah. All well, right, well, we do yeah. appreciate you. It's been a, a great uh, experience for us uh, and we coming into the 2015, and again, also, please communicate with us. And uh, even, criticisms are fine; we're we're fine with them, uh, and uh, they're helpful. And please do uh, come to the site. There's so much wonderful, rich offerings there uh, that uh, I think you'll enjoy beyond just subscribing to whichever podcast: Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Ram Das, Krishna Das, Mind Rolling. Uh, and we're going to have some uh, nice surprises coming into the new year. So love you all, and have a great 2015. You too, Dave. Yeah, you too, everyone.
1: Yeah.